welcome to FinTech Recap. My name is Alex Johnson. I am the creator and author of FinTech Takes, and joining me as he always does is my friend and fellow newsletter writer, Jason Mikula. Jason, how are you? I am doing pretty great. I uh, can't complain. Uh, days are getting shorter. Temperatures are going down. Still in apparently uh, the worst drought in 500 years, which I guess maybe is also the case where you are in Montana. Do you guys have any water? No, we really don't. Uh, we're, um, we, we had flooding at the beginning of the summer, right? And now we're out of water. So if it could just sort of uh, precipitate in a more steady fashion, that would be nice. But no, my, my lawn died probably uh, five, six weeks ago. And so we've been sort of living that um, crisped up grass look for the last little bit and uh, looking forward to temperatures cooling down and then uh, eventually, uh, eventually some snow coming probably sooner than I'm hoping for. And uh, conference season kicking off early. You were at uh, FinTech DevCon out in Denver, if I understand correctly. That's right. Yeah, I um, I had major FOMO the last time, uh, which I guess was the first time that DevCon happened. And uh, so I, I circled it on my calendar to make sure I did not miss it. Uh, actually, a really great event. Uh, Moved does a wonderful job putting it on. And it's in my own backyard. It's in Denver. And so like literally for the first time in the history of me traveling for conferences, direct flight. I got down there way before everyone else. I had all this like extra flexibility and travel. So that was magnificent and something I'm very much not used to. And uh, yeah, it was a great show. It was a great uh, opportunity to catch up with a lot of uh, folks in the fintech ecosystem and folks that we interact with uh, in person, which was nice. And, um, you know, got the opportunity to record a uh, special sort of late night podcast uh, that we did during a happy hour that we hosted, which uh, was wonderful. And I was really grateful for everyone who came. We um, had uh, Adam Nayor from AWS and Jason Henricks from Alloy Labs. And we um, we tossed around some hot takes and ate some uh, spicy chicken wings. So it was uh, it was quite an event and, and one I really enjoyed. And I, uh, I have FOMO just hearing you uh, talk about that. I'm, I'm going to have to circle uh, August on my calendar for 20 23 to make sure I can fit it into my conference schedule for next year. With that, should we uh, kick it off? Yeah, let's do it. Um, as, as always, we're going to hop through a couple of uh, fintech stories that caught our eye over the last month, because uh, crazy enough, August is about to end. So Jason, I'll let you take the first one. Yeah, you uh, guys know I'm probably the uh, resident Goldman expert, at least when it comes to the Marcus consumer product, uh, given I spent a couple of years there, uh, what feels like a million years ago at this point. Uh, and first story is from Bloomberg profiling uh, likely delay in the mass market launch of Goldman's uh, consumer checking account product. Now that product was supposed to originally roll out in 2021 and has already faced a couple of setbacks. Now Bloomberg is saying that Goldman is considering further delays uh, to a mass market rollout to the checking product until 2023 uh, in favor of a limited rollout to the firm's high net worth private wealth management clients. Uh, the underlying reason, believe it or not, is around cost and cost cutting. So at this point, Marcus has racked up a reported cumulative $4 billion in losses, uh, and it's really taken the attention from you know, the top of the firm, David Solomon, John Waldron, who's COO president, uh, as well as investors on Wall Street to get some of that red ink under control. 
uh, and it looks like a victim may be marketing advertising support for a rollout of the checking product this year. Um, your former colleague, uh, Ron, had perhaps the hottest of hot takes, putting mm -hmm. forth that Goldman should just kill off uh, the Marcus checking product. Any, any uh, initial reactions to sort of the shifting timeline, the concerns about cost, uh, and, and you know, what Goldman is doing with its consumer strategy here? Yeah, I mean, I think that first, the $4 billion is an eye-popping number, right? I mean, I think that we spend a lot of time sort of killing fintech companies for not being profitable or for spending too much money or having too high a burn rate or, you know, just kind of taking these VC checks and just pouring it into growth. But, you know, no one can spend money like big banks can spend, right? When they're trying to do something that's fundamentally new and $4 billion is a huge, huge number. And I think is indicative of, you know, kind of what you're saying that like, just the way in which they're conceiving of this product and really their whole sort of consumer suite and strategy, it, it almost strikes me as more of a thing where they're trying to check boxes than they're trying to build a coherent strategy, right? Which is really strange in a way because my impressions of them when they started this project, and you can speak to this, was that they had a pretty sort of narrowly tailored and smart vision for what they wanted to do, right? And so it starts off with, you know, I think high uh, yield savings and attracting a bunch of deposits at just the right time. And then there's all of these sort of positive economics that come out of the dollars that they're able to collect from a savings perspective and then what they can do. Then they start to, to land some really smart partnerships on the lending side with Apple Card and starting to try to get into buy now, pay later. And I don't know, somewhere around maybe the Green Sky acquisition or perhaps when they started to sort of get a little out ahead of their skis in terms of more uh, co-brand partnerships that never seemed to totally materialize into volume. But somewhere along the line, they seem to have kind of lost the thread. And I think probably a big part of that is attached to the turnover that they've had from an executive leadership perspective. But it just sort of seems like now they're groping for a strategy. And you know, I think to, to the article that Ron wrote, it's like, a checking account seems like a good idea only in that other banks in the space and other, you know, neobanks and fintechs also offer checking accounts, right? It seems like something you would do to check the box, but from a strategic perspective, it's difficult to look at that and see what value offering a checking account is going to do above and beyond what they already have. And it would seem like there are other avenues that might be much better to pursue if you're trying to build out more of a a kind of coherent consumer strategy. What was your take? Yeah, I mean, you're right that it, it you know, what was narrowly focused you know, eons ago when I was there, right, which was you know, way back then, it was, you know, uncons uh, unsecured personal loan and, yep. you know, high yield savings, which the savings account made sense to attract deposits, both for Marcus itself, as well as lowering the overall cost of funds for the rest of the firm, which historically had depended on more expensive sources of wholesale funding. Um, and really, it feels like, you know, you had perhaps a lot of people running in a lot of different directions with different ideas. And now you see sort of this smorgasbord of, you know, products, I would argue, of varying quality. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know if anyone remembers Marcus Invest, which is sort of their take on a robo-advisor. It is 
uh, not impressive is how I would summarize it. Um, so I think you've really seen sort of a mixture in the quality of execution uh, as well as just an un unclear strategy. And I guess if the if the mission was, you know, look at Chase's homepage and recreate every box, you know, across product lines so that you have a full stack, you know, digital bank, consumer first, no branches, I guess that they're progressing along that route and the checking account would be a very key box to check. You know, but but I would argue, and it, it was my sense that you know Ron was also essentially arguing this in his piece, is that 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 is somewhat of an anachronism. And, and if you ask the question, well, you know who who's going to go use this Goldman checking account? Uh, you know, it's presumably not people who are you know brand new to banking. Presumably, they're trying to win over customers who are already banked already have a checking account probably at a big money center bank like city or chase and frankly they're probably fairly well served with that product so the idea you know that goldman is going to launch uh, a checking account product and be able to win over uh users you know quote unquote primary accounts uh from other banks uh seems like a very expensive proposition and you know that potentially is why um, you know you've seen a bit of a additional delay here. Yeah, no, I think that's right, right? I mean, I I'm sort of struck by apparently your dog agrees as well. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sort of struck by the fact that um, you know they're kind of pivoting perhaps from at least a pilot perspective to you know rolling it out to the firm's wealth management clients, right? And it's like to me that sort of speaks to a broader question that I have about what what they're doing right now, which is just, you know, who who is this for, right? Like to your point about, you know, are you going after a brand new segment of consumers and sort of trying to separate from the Goldman Sachs brand and sort of broaden that footprint? Or is this a product for Goldman Sachs sort of existing customer base? And, you know, I think Goldman Sachs Invest sort of suffered from that same sort of unclear answer to that question, like, who is this for? And, you know, if it's for sort of higher net worth consumers that Goldman Sachs already worked with in some other capacity, I think one thing they will find that is very much a challenge is that, you know, those consumers are generally pretty happy with the banking that they have. And the reason that they're happy with it, I think, generally speaking, is that they already get outstanding service, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think one thing that um, people sort of fail to understand in fintech generally is that, if you're high net worth, people are your automation, right? Like you don't need a fully self-service, uh, brilliant app looking for all of the features to be in a mobile banking solution. Like you just call up your banker and they fix the problems that you have. And when you have that type of access to white glove service, you know, robo-advising doesn't really make a lot of sense. Uh, checking accounts that are sort of digital first don't necessarily make all that much sense. You can, I mean, you know, you can work with a community bank and get great service because you are at the very, very top tier. And so generally speaking, those consumers don't tend to move around. They tend to sort of shop for where they can get the best white glove service, where they have relationships. And, you know, they're not necessarily looking for a digital financial services super app. And so, you know, as Marcus kind of becomes 
more, I think, a branch of Goldman Sachs as opposed to its own independent brand, I think Goldman Sachs is going to have to sort of wrestle with who these products are for and which ones are going to be competitive and which ones won't be. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, looking at the other side of the coin, which is what would the strategy be for the firm in this case? And looking at a shipping account product, there's really only sort of two avenues that make sense to me. One is, you know, it's an additional source of deposits, although probably, um, you know, not as sticky as the existing uh, online savings account and CD that Marcus offers. So like they kind of have already ticked that box on the deposit side. So then the only sort of avenue is, okay, we're going to land these checking account customers and cross-sell them, which is always easier said than done, you know, unless you're Wells Fargo and you want to open a bunch of accounts in people's name, always easier said than done. It was like, oh yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to cross-sell these customers, you know, pump up our LTV that way. Um, you know, I think the reality is executing on that is incredibly difficult. And, you know, there are uh, other fairly comparable examples. And I would point to SoFi where just because you land you know, an attractive customer, in SoFi's case, that was through, you know, cheap student loan refi. Mm -hmm. um, just because you land that customer doesn't mean you can cross-sell that person into a mortgage and, you know, an investment product and, you know, a spending account and all these other things. You know, the, the customers that Goldman is going after are already well-served by plenty of other banks and financial services institutions. Uh, they're increasingly accustomed to having you know, multiple apps, multiple accounts for purpose specific applications. You know, if they're, you know, aiming at a younger demographic, that could be, you know, Robinhood for training and, you know, Betterment or personal capital for, you know, automated investing, Coinbase for crypto. Uh, so, yeah, it's just, it's not clear to me that either the deposit play makes sense given they already have. Uh, the high yield platform. And it's also not clear to me that they would be able to successfully execute a cross-sell strategy given their product portfolio, honestly, is still a little bit slim. It's basically unsecured personal loans, savings. The invest product is, to be blunt, terrible. Uh, the Marcus Insights, which was a rebranded Clarity Money PFM, I was poking around in it last night. It's also not particularly impressive. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't even have uh, their own uh, Marcus branded credit card, only the Apple and the GM card. So even if you were doing this cross-sell strategy, uh, built a base of checking account customers, there's actually not even that much stuff to cross-sell them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You go to the cupboard and you're like, yeah, we'll cross-sell all of these. Oh, wait, no, we, we won't. And it's, I think it's a really good observation that it's just, it's really, really hard to build out a coherent strategy here. And the last point I'll make, and then we can jump to the next topic, is mm -hmm. it really feels like the other challenge here that's maybe a little under-discussed is like, what does Marcus mean as a brand to consumers, right? And I just, I do not have a clear answer to that question. You know, I mean, like some, I think companies do a better job executing on what their brand promises than others. But generally speaking, you can go through the the landscape of consumer financial services providers and fintech companies, and you can kind of point at each one and go, okay, I get what their pitch is. I get what their brand means to consumers. And then it's just a question of how well they execute and how wide the appeal of that is. But mm -hmm. like you, you, know, you mentioned SoFi, you look at SoFi, they have a very clear 
uh, value proposition and brand that they focus on. It's membership-based. It's all about helping to improve your financial health. It's about helping you to get your money right, I think is maybe the way that they frame what they do. So it's it's a very, very clear pitch. And then it's just a question of execution. In the case of Marcus, like gun to my head, I swear, I don't know that I could articulate what their brand is or what it means, right? It's just like, and I, this is the worst possible answer coming from uh, Goldman Sachs, which is the parent company, but I think it's to make money, right? Like that's, that, if you put a gun to my head, that would be the way I would describe their brand is like, money is good. And that's a terrible brand proposition for <laughs> consumers. It's utterly incoherent. It's not clear who it's for. And I honestly think they'd be better off just pivoting entirely to serving high net worth consumers, if that's the pitch, right? Like go all in on that brand, but this sort of half measure stuff that they're doing across direct to consumer, high net worth, and also through co-brand partnerships, it's just pulling their brand in too many different directions. I have a, a short, funny anecdote, and then we will get to the next one. When uh, they were building and launching the unsecured consumer lending product that's most typically used to refinance credit card debt. And all of the PR push was around oh, helping Americans get out of credit card debt. Fast forward, what, three or four years, and they're launching multiple credit cards with Apple, with GM, helping helping get Americans back into credit card debt. So, I mean, <laughs> I think, you know, the, it's a little, I think you and I are both cynical enough to see through these kinds of PR and, and, and marketing, but it does kind of speak to that, you know, brand question or brand promise of like, well, what, what do you really stand for? Uh, anyway, yeah. I, I digress. You're going to take us on to uh, the next topic. No, yeah, that's a, that's a good <laughs> place to end that one. Um, so the next topic um, related actually, because we were talking about deposits and the, the value of gathering deposits. Um, I wrote recently in my newsletter about this rising rate environment that we're in and um, the potential winners and losers in a rising rate environment, given that we haven't really seen a sustained rising rate environment for quite some time, right? I was, uh, was talking to my parents last night and they were saying that when they bought their house, which they still own, uh, that was in, you know, like 1987, I want to say, uh, the price of the house was not that high compared to what it is today, but their uh, interest rate was 15%, which was utterly insane to me. Like they said 15% and it just completely broke my brain. But it was also a reminder that we haven't been in that type of environment for a long time. Now, fast forward to today and uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, Jerome Powell, the uh, chairman of the Federal Reserve, was speaking at a uh, conference in Jackson Hole, and he gave a very, very short speech in which he said, and I'm going to read you the quote just so that we uh, can uh, anchor ourselves on it, reducing inflation is likely to require a sustained period of below trend growth. Moreover, there will very likely be some softening of labor market conditions. While higher interest rates, slower growth, and softer labor market conditions will bring down inflation, they will also bring some pain to households and businesses. Translation for that is Jerome Powell has been on an aggressive course of cutting uh, down inflation by trying to raise, by raising interest rates. And so far, it hasn't actually worked. Uh, if you look at like the employment numbers as an example, we're still close to full employment. And so what he has basically come out and said and trying to prepare the market for is, we're gonna keep doing this until 
unemployment goes up. We're going to keep doing this until consumer spending goes down. We are going to bring more pain to the economy so that we can get inflation under control. And the reason they're doing that, to go to one more quote that he said, was restoring price stability will likely require maintaining a restrictive policy stance for some time. The historical record cautions strongly against prematurely loosening policy. So basically what they're saying is we want to restore price stability. We want to get to a point where when we move rates around, it has a predictable impact on consumer demand, on borrowing, and on employment, and the impact that that has on inflation. So all of that said, I think what it means for us is we're going to have to sort of chart out a course for how different companies survive and who are winners and who are losers in a raising a rising rate environment, because that's not going to go away anytime soon. So when I was sketching out who might win and who might lose, some of the ones that jumped out to me, and Jason, I'd love your take on this, because I know you've, you've looked into a lot of these companies. Um, one category was uh, fintech lenders that have a bank charter, right? So this is the lending club, SoFi, Cash App category of companies. Um, in the same general neighborhood, but in a less nice house that's a little run down, would be Varro, that also technically has a charter and the ability to lend, but hasn't been doing as much lending, and I'll let you talk to that one more. But theoretically, all the companies in this category should be well positioned to, to do really well in a rising rate environment, because they have that low cost source of funding through their bank charter and ability to gather deposits that can then allow them to succeed more on the lending side and drive good net interest margin. Um, by contrast, I think that non-bank lenders, so this could be buy now, pay later companies like a firm, it could be uh, sort of just unsecured personal lenders like a Prosper or an Upstart, they're gonna have a much harder time. And there's already been some reporting in the Wall Street Journal that a lot of those companies are struggling to uh, access the securitization markets the same way that they've been able to before to sell their existing loans. They've also struggled to uh, get access to new funding from uh, investment banks or other sources that are a little less interested in giving them a great deal on uh, large warehouse lines that they can lend from. So those companies would seem to be going into a place where it's gonna be quite painful in order to kind of continue to do what they do. And so, I don't know, Jason, did you have any thoughts on kind of winners and losers in this now apparently uh, rising rate environment that's not going to go away for a while? Yeah, I reread your piece this morning, and, and I guess it's kind of boring to just say I agree with everything you wrote. Um, no, no, that's the best thing. I love but, that. But I mean, no, I mean, I think your your analysis is is spot on, right? If you're a fintech lender... Uh, that you know has acquired a charter, you get the benefit of that increasing that interest margin. Yeah, Vero is kind of a weird one because it doesn't really do a lot of lending to its own customers. That said, you know for the deposits it it has, which are not you know not that many, uh, but for the deposits it has, it does earn interest even if it's just parking those at the central bank. And as that rate rises, Vero's interest income will increase even if it's not really doing a lot of lending to its own customers. Um, I think on the non-bank side, again, you know, you're exactly right. We've been in this environment where capital, capital has been desperately searching for yield that has made it fairly easy for non-bank lenders to access warehouse lines, do securitizations. Um, and there are already signs that that is changing as spreads uh, increase. I think the um, place that is perhaps in for the most pain uh, is non-bank lenders that are focusing on subprime borrowers. So yeah. particularly those that might get 
pushed up against that sort of uh, 36% APR cap. And you're seeing this with Upstart where, you know, they actually have to start um, declining more customers because they cannot charge uh, a rate that makes sense between their cost of funds and the underlying risk of default and, and you know, other costs of originating and servicing those loans. Uh, I did want to call out and this is a podcast, so this doesn't make a ton of sense, but go look at Alex's piece because it has a really great uh, screen grab from Lending Club's most recent earnings. This uh, comparison blew me away. It was basically comparing Lending Club, your sort of original peer-to-peer -peer lender, uh, and what its prior record net income was, uh, and its previous record was in the fourth quarter of 2019, uh, and that's when it was reliant on you know, these various forms of external funding, a small percentage from retail investors, uh, most, mostly various uh, debt investors, facilities, banks, et cetera. And then comparing that to its current model, where it has a charter via the acquisition of uh, Radius Bank. And so it has deposits from that, as well as continuing to work with some of these third-party funders. Uh, and frankly, it sort of blew... Uh, its income previous record out of the water. Previously, mm -hmm. a paltry $200,000 in gap net income uh, for Q4 2019. And for the first quarter of this year, you know, nearly 41 million. Um, so yeah, that you know really put into stark world. Now, I don't think the share price is necessarily <laughs> reflected. Yeah. It's change in performance. That's a different story. Um, but it really does demonstrate you know, depending on what the business is, the benefit of having a charter. I don't think the same thing is true in Vero's case, where, you know, Vero's business is going to benefit in the same way that uh, Lending Club or SoFi, which are lending to, you know, prime, maybe some near prime, super prime uh, mm -hmm. customers. Uh, but yeah, definitely a very interesting change to Lending Club's business model and as a result performance. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and I think, you know, one thing to just add on to that, um, and I think it's relevant for SoFi, I think it's relevant for uh, Cash App, because their uh, parent company did acquire a industrial loan charter. Uh, so theoretically, they have the ability to start kind of connecting their lending and deposits together and take advantage of this as well as, you know, I think the the trick to doing this well is, you have to get good at lending first, right? And that's why like Lending Club and SoFi make a lot of sense. They cut their teeth doing mm -hmm. lending in a different credit cycle, different credit environment, but they got good at it, right? They went through multiple vintages of figuring out how do we do underwriting? What data helps with that approach? How do we do collections? How do we do servicing? How do we manage adverse selection? Like all of these things that lenders figure out they did that. And, you know, in the, both SoFi's case, less so because of who they were lending to, and certainly in Lending Club's case, they had challenges, right? There were like major problems that they had to work through as organizations in order to figure out how to become good lenders. But once they figured that out and they built that machine, adding deposits and a bank charter onto that just supercharges it from a profitability perspective. To, to go back to what Jason was sharing about Lending Club's uh, most recent results this year, and I think SoFi is in line to sort of realize similar benefits. Um, in the case of like Varo, and I think you could extend this to Chime or to other uh, neobanks that are big on the deposit side, but aren't really, don't have a history of doing a lot of lending. I think the benefits of a charter there are much fuzzier because 
you add a charter and you're adding huge, huge regulatory burden, you're adding a ton of cost, but it doesn't mean that magically you become great at lending, right? It's mm -hmm. like still lending is going to be a challenge, particularly when those companies, their customer base isn't exactly the customer base you want to lend to, to start with anyway, right? And so you're already starting from a pretty kind of dark place in terms of who you're lending to, then you have to build the sort of normal competencies that go into being a good lender. And then you have to figure out how you loop in the cost of funding. So, you know, I, I think to be fair, this is only something that became apparent to me in retrospect, looking backwards, it's always hard to make these decisions in real time in the moment. But I think looking back to me, what jumps out is there's a proper order to go about building out your banking business for consumers in terms of what products you add and where you need to spend time getting good at what you do and where you loop in a charter there. And of course, the challenge with that is not only do you have to get that sequencing right, but you also have to get the timing right, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it's difficult to do lending today, even if you're trying to sort of develop that core competency. I think a lot of fintech companies, thanks to some of the struggles that Varo has had and maybe some of the lessons that the Fed and the OCC have learned from that, probably going to be a little harder to get a charter in the next couple of years than it has been. So I think that a lot of these things are a combination of the right sequencing and those different steps happening at the right timing, but it equals the same thing, which is certain companies are going to be well positioned in this environment and certain ones aren't. The other one that I, I want to circle back to, Jason, that you mentioned real fast is the other part of this that's really weird is we're just not sure what's going to happen from a consumer delinquency perspective, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the thing that's overhanging all of this is, you know, Upstart and Affirm and a lot of others would be in a really good position, probably still from a securitization standpoint, if the secondary market investors were A, looking for other places for yield, like they were, and B, if they felt totally 100% confident in credit performance. But, you know, if you look at some of the commentary that came out around a firm's most recent earnings, which were just announced, and, uh, you know, they they did okay, I think, but um, the, the stock sort of took a bit of a tumble anyway. A lot of it, I think, had to do with the fact that a firm was giving some guidance about how careful they're being right now from a lending perspective, right? And just how concerned they might be about consumers starting to get a little overheated in terms of some of their credit obligations and ability to repay. And it's a it's a tough one to predict because, you know, we're still at close to full employment. Uh, consumers are still spending very actively. Credit card lenders, as an example, are pouring a lot more money into customer acquisition right now. So there are some positive signals but then there are also some negative signals. Consumer savings rates have been really plummeting lately. Consumers are taking on more debt. We're starting to see delinquencies start to tick up in a couple different areas. And so it's just in this really weird place where I'm not sure we know what credit performance is going to look like six months to a year from now. And that's, I think, causing a lot of uncertainty, which is damaging to certain companies in the space. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and the you know, the point I made um, on some other podcasts recently uh, was, you know, you can look at what? the... You have other podcasts you go on? No, uh, I think I think it was our, our friends at 11FS uh, a few weeks oh, ago. Okay. That's um, <laughs> Was, you know, you can look at, you know, the American economy in aggregate or the American consumer in aggregate and say, you know, corporate balance sheet, household balance sheet are, you know, overall in good shape. This is not, you know, this is not 2008. Uh, households are not over levered the same way they were back then. 
Uh, this is not you know, a housing-driven recession if we are in a recession. But when you start to drill down and look at discrete segments, there are clearly pockets that you know there should be some concern about. I mean, the stat I saw last week that I just thought was shocking was that one in six households in the U.S. Uh, has overdue delinquent uh, utility account balances. So basically behind on paying, you know, electricity, uh, gas, water, et cetera, one in six households. Mm -hmm. um, and you are starting to see delinquencies tick up in uh, the more subprime and some of the near prime products. And so it's not irrational, particularly sort of closing the loop on this, in a rising rate environment, where the Fed is basically signaling they are willing to cause economic pain, aka recession and higher unemployment, you know, it's not irrational to say, hey, maybe we need to tap the to the tap the brakes a bit on on what we're originating, particularly for some of these consumers at the margin. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think that's very well said. Um, I think we have time for one more topic. Do you want to jump into to one last one? Yeah, let's do it. I mean, I, uh, I guess, foolishly paid off my student loans long, long <laughs> ago. <laughs> no, not that long ago um, at this point. But as, as I'm sure, you know, all of our listeners are probably aware, the Biden administration has advanced plans to forgive $10,000 uh, for borrowers earning up to $125,250K for couples. Uh, and forgive double that, so 20000 for Pell Grant and recipients. That's the part that's getting the majority of the headlines. There are two additional pieces that I think are also quite interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, one being that the payment pause has been extended again, so no one needs to be making payments until uh, the beginning of 2023. That's not terribly surprising given just the utter... Uh, chaos of how this has been handled. I've had numerous people whisper in my ear that the uh, student loan servicing space is just an absolute mess and ill-prepared to deal with restarting student loan payments from really from any perspective. I mean, mailing updated statements, handling customer calls, et cetera. And then the last component of this plan, which I actually find to be the most interesting, is the proposal or the creation of a new income-driven repayment option which mm -hmm. would lower uh, the amount from 10% of discretionary income to 5%. But perhaps more importantly, that the government would cover unpaid interest on those balances. And so the problem, you know, one of the big problems with how income-driven repayment has, has worked for a lot of borrowers is, you know, if you're paying 10% of your discretionary income, it's entirely possible you're not even covering your interest payment each month. That interest then becomes capitalized and you see your loan balance grow instead of go down. So you hear these horror stories of people who have been paying for five years or 10 years or 20 years and their balance is maybe unchanged or maybe it's actually gone up. Now, eventually, both in the current system and, and in the sort of new proposed modification, you know, if you make on-time payments long enough, Eventually, the balance is for forgiven, but then that poses a new problem, which is forgiven debt is treated as income and you're taxed on it. Uh, I don't know if the, the modifications that have been proposed here address that issue, um, but the 5% uh, of discretionary income should make this more affordable for a lot of student borrowers. And I think the change that the government is now covering unpaid interest on those balances. You know, I haven't actually seen a lot of coverage or discussion of that. And it seems like it could have some very interesting um, effects on sort of 
the economics of how students think about um, you know, borrowing money, where they're going to school, how much they're paying, and how they think about repayment behavior. Um, but did you have any sort of quick, quick take reactions to this uh, uh, student loan forgiveness proposal? Yeah, no, I mean, I my reaction was similar to yours, and I, I'm glad you walked through that actually, because um, I hadn't really realized the extent to which they were going to change the the income driven repayments moving forward, right? I mean, the the ten thousand is whatever, right? Like, I think people probably knew this was coming. Uh, there's all these discussions about if it's fair, if it's not. I'm not overly interested in those discussions, but changing the way this works moving forward, I think, is a much more kind of long term impactful change because it is going to, to your point, impact the way people think about taking on debt and making repayments, and you know, in particular. I guess I hadn't really realized that with the the old system, you know, if you were only paying the 10%, yeah, technically you're not delinquent. So that's good in a sort of objective sense. But the reality is it's kind of like you were bailing water out of your boat, but the water was still rushing in faster. So it's like all the energy you were putting towards bailing was really wasted because there was still going to be more water in the boat than when you started anyway. And I, I think that the government stepping in and saying, you know, will essentially help take care of that problem so that as you pay back that 5%, you're actually making meaningful progress towards paying down the principal. I think that's fascinating. And I, I, to your point about the impact it'll have on the way that people think about repayment behavior, this is something that I wonder about a lot, right? And not just with student lending, but with buy now, pay later and like, the fact that you know these loans have no fees and no interest, like almost from an anthropological perspective, I think a question we have to ask is, how are we sort of retraining consumers' brains to think about debt and repayment? And what long-term impact will that have on their behaviors and then the way that we model their behaviors when we're doing credit scoring and underwriting and trying to assess risk? I, I guess I don't have a clear answer on what that's going to look like, but it would seem like this would be another sort of rock that's thrown in the pond and is going to cause some of those ripples. Yeah, the the income driven thing is, is uh, can be very confusing for people to understand. Actually, um, the UK has a similar system. I mean, I think the standard approach there, and, and I used to work for a private student lending company in the UK. So at, at some point, I had a deep understanding of how it all worked. Uh, but in the public loan system in the UK, which is, you know, accounts for, you know, 99.9% .9 of student loans in the UK, uh, all of it is repaid on an income basis. And it presents some really interesting and confusing for, for I think, your average borrower optimization problems, where if you are likely to have a relatively high salary, it's better to pay more than your minimum amount that you owe and be done with a loan earlier to minimize the amount of interest you owe over the life of the loan. But if you have a career where you believe you're going to make you know, maybe relatively low amount of money. And at, mm -hmm. uh, at the time I worked in the field, I think it was like below 25,000 pounds of income, you paid nothing. And mm -hmm. then above 25,000 pounds, you paid like a set percent of your salary. So let's say you're a, you know, a nurse at the NHS or a, you know, a primary school teacher or something, you're actually then better off 
you know, just paying the absolute minimum you can based on a percent of your income. Because then after, I want to say it was 10 years, but maybe it was 20 years, the, the, the remainder of the balance would be forgiven. And so functionally, that actually ends up acting more like a tax than it does a loan or a debt product. Because really, you're paying a percent of your income for 10 years or 20 years. The actual number on your loan statement stops meeting anything. Mm-hmm. And so one, you know, uh, I think for a lot of people, that's kind of confusing to think like, well, you know, I'm getting these loan statements and maybe, you know, in the UK example, you could also have a reverse amortization where the balance is going up or it's staying the same, you know, in, in the US scenario, at least under the historic system, you know, you could be seeing your balance go up and it's like, but really like that number might not mean anything because you're really never going to pay it. In some cases, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well, I think the um, that that circles back to the larger point, which is just as it relates to these payment holidays, and as it relates to sort of forgiveness of debt in sort of large increments, like they're doing right now. It, it also just sort of raises this interesting question, which is like as a consumer, and you know, we hope that consumers act somewhat rationally in the way that they deal with financial services. What would be the rational expectation about the debt that you're taking on and how you'll be required to service it in the future, right? And, you know, student lending has always been a little bit different than other lending categories, but I think that it starts to sort of bridge into a broader question about the level of responsible debt that consumers should have to deal with. And then like from a public policy perspective, where the government should or maybe will step in and make changes. And from a consumer perspective, I'm just fascinated to understand where will they sort of draw the lines about like, what's the rational thing to do here? Because, you know, weird stuff happens when consumers sort of take in all of the data and go, you know what, actually, it'd be better to do this. When we saw this during the the Great Recession, when um, you know consumers stopped paying back their mortgages and kept paying their credit card and mm-hmm. auto right? Because it was more rational for them, given the backlog of uh, delinquencies and foreclosures happening in the mortgage space, for them to go delinquent there, wait out that process, see what happened, and continue to make sure that they had a car and an access to a credit card and liquidity. So I think every time you do something like this, and COVID has been a big sort of, you know, again, rock dropped in a pond that's created all these ripples, you start to influence the rational way that consumers look at repayment behavior and prioritization and probably too early to say exactly what that's going to look like, but something to pay attention to for sure. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think by any stretch we've heard the last on this story. There are bound to be legal challenges uh, as far as the executive authority to implement it. You know, clearly some people are very happy. Other people are less happy. I'm also kind of <laughs> curious how this would potentially impact, you know, we're talking about SoFi. SoFi's business model is based on refinancing uh, student loan debt. But if I can just carry my loan with the government and the government is picking up the tab on the interest, why in the world would I refinance it into a SoFi loan? So there could also be some interesting knock-on impacts in, you know, in some of the fintech companies that uh, that we've discussed today even. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's like leave my wedge product alone. Like it's working perfectly the way that it is. So no, I um I think that's definitely true. Um, let's wrap up as we always do with a couple can't let it go topics. These are um things that Jason and I are obsessed with that may or may not be totally relevant to what we do in our day to day newsletter writing, but that were kind of personally just things we're passionate about. Um, Jason, I'm gonna let you go first. 
Yeah, I will keep this one uh, short and sweet. I still can't let go of uh, the FDIC sending some sternly worded letters to crypto companies that uh, had misleadingly described products as perhaps being FDIC regulated or insured. You know, it, it, it kind of feels like the horse has left the barn on this one, you know, when you have multiple companies in in bankruptcy or liquidation, you know, user user funds either frozen or lost and the uh, response from the regulatory apparatuses, I'm going to send a sternly worded letter. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm being a bit facetious or hyperbolic, perhaps I'm, I'm glad to see some action happening here. And, you know, looking through um, the letters the FDIC sent, I noticed that some of them were to uh, sort of like news, crypto news websites, or even some that looked perhaps like affiliate or marketing websites. Mm. And I can certainly testify, having worked in the marketing space with affiliate partners, how incredibly difficult it is to oversee what third parties are saying about your product. Um, so, I mean, some of the some of the companies here had great names like CryptoSEC.info and oh, FDIC, FDICCrypto.com. And so if, you know, if you're one of these, you know, janky third-party websites that's writing something about Coinbase mm-hmm. uh, or some other crypto exchange, you know, I understand the difficulty in policing that. However, if there is a affiliate relationship where, you know, they're trying to generate traffic through you know, SEO or PPC and then monetize it by selling, you know, selling leads to crypto companies, you know, those companies have a responsibility for overseeing their third parties. So it, it's not entirely clear in this case if, if there, these were sort of affiliates. Uh, there was also a pretty fantastic tweet from the U.S. president of FTX, but uh, I'll, I'll let our listeners go Google and, and read that one for, for themselves. What, uh, what can't you let go of this week? Well, for me, I actually weirdly have a non-crypto one. So I pol- apologies to our listeners. Next month, I'll get back to back to crypto and all the things I can't let go there. But um, mine is actually a uh, rant, I guess, a bit, which is to say that um, we need to stop letting what we want to be true override our common sense about what's actually true or likely to be true. And I have two examples that I will share that are driving me a little crazy at the moment. So the first one is um, super apps. Uh, and uh, my my old colleague, Ron Shevlin, uh, has written about this recently. Everyone wants a super app. And when I say everyone, what I mean is every company CEO who's in financial services wants to have a super app. Some of them say it out loud and put it in their marketing materials. Some of them just nurture that desire secretly in their heart, never say it out loud. But all of them want to offer a super app. And I get it, right? Like I get why it's so compelling and you have to have a super app. And I get the LTV advantages and the sort of universe of boundless cross-sell opportunities. Like I get it. But the reality is, in the U.S., there is absolutely no evidence that U.S. consumers would actually use a super app, nor is it reasonable to assume that regulators or all of the entrenched monopolies and oligopolies that we have in the U.S. and all of these sort of related industries that would be a part of a super app will ever allow super apps to happen. So there's no case for a super app to be made in the U.S., and yet every company continues to say, yeah, we're going to build towards a super app or our strategy is really based around this sort of super app concept. Please stop saying super app. It's never going to happen no matter how much you want it. Second and related to that is 
uh, a Wall Street Journal article, the title of which drove me absolutely crazy that said, wait, when did everyone start using Apple Pay? Question mark. And the contention of the article was that the conditions ripe for Apple Pay to take off and I guess sort of mobile uh, point of sale payments more generally to take off in the US are starting to become stronger, right? So in the case of uh, iPhones and Apple Pay, apparently we're now at about 75% of iPhones that are out there that have Apple Pay activated. And I sort of say activated in quotes because I think all that really means is that the consumer has opted to have Apple Pay be active as a part of the signup process for activating their iPhones. Um, that does not in any way mean that we are close to people paying with Apple Pay or their mobile wallets at the point of sale in stores. Now, again, I know that in places like New York and San Francisco, depending on the circles you swim in, you may see this behavior popping up from time to time. And I definitely think it's starting to creep up. But look at the large scale surveys that have been done on the space. We're still not anywhere near ubiquity. And we might want to be the case. I think for some reason, people who write uh, about personal finance and financial services love the concept of mobile payments and writing about the death of credit cards and the death of cash and people leaving their wallets at home. It's an attractive story that we've been writing about forever. It's still not true. And we need to stop wanting it to be true and just wait for the data to come in. So that's my rant, Jason. Any last thoughts on that one? I'll admit I saw the Wall Street Journal headline and I had not yet read it. And I thought, that doesn't sound right. But like, I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time to go down this rabbit hole right now to try to ferret out like an accurate statistic, but yeah, uh, I, I I was uh, skeptical when I saw the headline. Well, to be totally fair, I didn't really have the time to go down that rabbit hole, but I couldn't resist and I went down it anyway and it sort of destroyed my productivity for an hour. But yeah, suffice it to say, very misleading headline. We're not close to Apple Pay being ubiquitous. We're not close to super apps and uh, it would do me a great favor just from a mental health perspective if we stopped saying that we were. Um, Jason, with that, uh, I think we can wrap up here. Thank you, as always, for joining me. And thanks to our listeners for another month of FinTech Recap. Until next time.